and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about potassium. This is the nutrient that we see the most deficient on a lot of soil tests. So we'll talk about the importance of potassium, the levels you should be looking for in your farm, and quite frankly, whether or not you can afford potassium, because I know a lot of people are looking at some of these fertilizer prices and you go, wow, it's just so much higher than it was two years ago. Maybe I should cut back. Well, we'll talk about what level you need in your soil test to start thinking, okay, maybe I can cut back, at least in the short term, versus where you really want to be pushing it. If you've got any questions for us about potassium or anything that's going on in your farm, you can give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. You can also find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. All right, so with potassium, the two things we're really looking for is, number one, we need total pounds, and number two, We need the right ratio in the soil, and the way to figure that out is the base saturation test. So the base saturation, that is comparing sodium, hydrogen, calcium, magnesium, and potassium to each other. So those five nutrients, and what's the ratio? So with potassium, what we want is a minimum, a bare minimum of 4% on that base saturation K test. If you don't have at least 4%, the odds are extremely high. Your plant's going to be a little short on potassium or maybe a lot short on potassium. On the high end of things, normally what we talk about is 8% is kind of our limit. But if you have really light soil where you just flat out can't hold many pounds of anything, you can go beyond that 8% because we know that that number is going to come down really fast. Again, that would just be for really light sandy soils. We're probably talking three or five or seven CEC soils. You just can't hold much of anything, including potassium. So anyway, with our heavy soils that we have here in South Dakota, I I just let me paint this picture for you. Our ground is frozen for about five months in the wintertime. We have very little rainfall. Our average cation exchange capacity in our farm is probably 25 22, 25, something like that. It's really heavy ground. So when you think about it, the odds of us leaching potassium away, really, really slim. It's probably basically never going to happen in my lifetime. On the other hand, let's say I'm in Alabama. My ground never freezes. I've got five, well, at least three times the water we're going to get here, maybe four or five times the water we're going to get here. And then you're dealing with, in some cases, let's say you have a 3 or a 5 CEC. So you have really light, sandy soil. Yes, you can lose your potassium. It can flush out of there. Now, it doesn't leach nearly as quickly as, let's say, nitrate or even sulfate or boron. But it can move through those really, really light soils. So in that case, that's where we'd say you probably need to spoon feed. Up here, we talk about building the soil But one of the problems that we have is potash doesn't break down fast. So let's say that we just pick up some new ground. We got 1% base saturation K in a heavy soil. We know we're getting killed on yield because of lack of potassium. Our suggestion is, sure, by all means, be on a build program with potash. But then absolutely we're going to tell you, use some liquid fertilizer too. Whether you want to do that at 
planting time and the side dress or just at planting time, whatever. But the point is make sure you're using some liquid because we need some stuff available right now. We have had it in the past where we've done strip till, placed potash, dry potash, 8 to 10 inches deep in the ground, gone out there 10 months later, still found the dry potash not broken down. Seriously, that's how dry we get and how heavy our soils are. So because of that, we just have the understanding, all right, we're going to put potash out. We're going to be in a build program like we were two years ago when potash was at its 15-year low for price. We bought up so much potash, it was crazy. We raised a lot of our levels that were at 3 or 4% up to 7%. Some fields, we just went to 6% if we said, well, we're probably going to put some manure out there in the future. But still, we raised everything up to 6 or 7% on the farm. That was great when the potash was cheap. But we have the understanding when we put it out, it's probably going to take three years to fully break down. Well, we're only two years later right now. So I still expect some of that potash is going to be breaking down next year. I know it might seem absolutely crazy where you go, what? It's not going to take three years. No, it will take three years when we're talking about our super dry conditions, really heavy soils, and we're frozen five months out of the year. Dry potash just flat out doesn't break down fast. So kind of keep that in mind. The other nice thing with potash is it does contain chloride and we do need that as a nutrient and that is fairly leachable. So there are a lot of people that talk about chloride deficiency, especially as you go west and wheat. Well, just throw a little bit of potash out. That's usually going to solve any of your chloride issues. But when it comes to potassium, we want you looking at that base saturation percentage. But again, I'm going to come back to the pounds or parts per million, however you want to look at it, that's in your soil. If you pull up the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app, you punch in your crop and your yield goal, it'll tell you how much potassium you need. How much does it take to produce the grain and how much does it take to produce the stover? And then there's a total figure that's there. It's a staggering amount for a lot of crops. And even for soybeans, I think a lot of people don't realize how much potassium in total the soybean crop needs. But here's something you may never have heard before. On a daily basis, at the peak... A really great soybean crop is probably going to remove maybe even twice as much as a really great corn crop on a per day basis just for a few days at the peak. And that peak is in the potting stage in soybeans. So the reason why I bring this up is very commonly we run into people who say, boy, my, so my corn yields are great, but my soybean yields, ah, they just aren't keeping up. Almost always the issue is lack of potassium. And it's not the total potassium that you have and you say, well, I should have more than enough out there for the whole crop. Well, yeah, but the fact is when you hit the peak on soybeans, your, your soil can't deliver enough unless you have a really high amount in that soil and the right ratio in the base saturation test so your calcium and especially your magnesium don't inhibit the uptake of that potassium. So we're going to talk about potassium all throughout the show today. Then we'll get to the Ag PhD mailbag. That's all coming up on Ag PhD Radio. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us.
When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zeopro Miticide from Valent USA. With next-level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zealpro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate. And that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gainground. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, discussing one of our favorite topics, fertility, and specifically potassium fertility. Our phone lines will be open throughout the show today at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can always email us as well if you have a question or you want to send us a soil test or plant tissue test. It's radio at agphd.com. Happy to have Mike Evans on with us right now. He's an agronomist down in Iowa, works with the Extreme Ag Group. Mike, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, one thing, you know, working with the Extreme Ag guys, they're shooting for high yields and not just like, oh, you know, let's just do okay. They want to do great, and they want to be profitable with what they're doing. And I would assume potassium is one of those big nutrients that you got to dial in just right. Yeah, yeah, we focus a lot on potassium here with Kelly. So what do you what do you look for? I guess are you looking at crop removal rates? Are you looking at pounds per acre in the soil, base saturation? What what kind of measurements do you think are real key to know? Uh, kind of all of them. Um, you know, we're on a cycle now. We've got some beans out. We're sampling them again. We're we're coming back a third year here and sampling um, soil sampling on a kind of a zone grid basis and an analyzing. Uh, what our levels are at so we can make some adjustments for next year. You know, when you look at a really high yielding crop, the bad part about it is it took a lot of fertility out of the ground, so you got to put it back. So I'm glad I don't have to pay Kelly's budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we do take a lot off, um, but Kelly's done a good job of building it up over the, over the years. So really we're just managing it by the area. Um, got some weak spots we're going to pay attention to. And uh, just keep uh, looking at this, the tissue samples of the year to help us analyze all that. You know, when you're looking at tissue sample results, we get a lot of questions around that about what levels do we need to be at and, and when do I need to be pulling samples and how often and those types of things. What kind of strategy do you like? We look, you know, we're trying to build a database and looking at trend lines, you know. Uh, and we pull about every 
to two weeks. Once we get the reproductive phase, we'll pull them a little frequently, uh, maybe every week for a couple weeks there, just to kind of get a good grasp of how much we're pulling down in that time, because it is a that's a key time when you're pulling a lot of potassium into the plant. Yeah, we look in in our fields at the variability that we've got out there. Some are, some areas of the field yield higher than others. I would assume uh, everybody deals with that, especially. Well, you think about where Kelly Garrett farms and and how much elevation change there is in some of those fields. Got to be some difference out there. When you look at stalks on corn or beans or any other crop, I mean, we see thin stalks when we don't deliver enough K. Uh, what do you what do you noticing with the stocks this year? What are you noticing with the plants in general, considering this year's weather? Yeah, we've noticed a couple spots um, where they don't hold as much water. Um, you know, we you know K needs water to move and get into the plant. So some of those weaker areas where water's uh, the ridges where it's a little drier it tends to be drier are a little thinner. Um, stocks are a little bit narrower in diameter. Um, but in the bottoms and stuff, we're getting really good, you know, I would call it a typical year for our stock quality. Yeah, water definitely makes a huge difference with uh, really with everything. But you're right, to get that potassium into the crop, you got to have enough moisture out there to do it. Now we're talking with Mike Evans. He's an agronomist down in Iowa, works with Kelly Garrett in the Extreme Ag Group. Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. All right, thank you. Let's head out to California. Got our friend Bill Brush with us right now. Bill, we're talking potassium today. Uh, surprise, surprise that you'd hear uh, the Ag PhD guys talking about K. Hey, you know, uh, I always find it uh, amusing that we come back to K and it, it always comes back to the same reason is if K was cheap, we'd use lots, <laughs> but K is not. So we have to find the best way and the best sources to meet the crop's need. And uh, one of the things about a lot of things about K is is that depending on what crop you're growing is the removal of K. And and it's the old bank account theory that, you know, you just can't keep pulling from that bank account and not have some severe consequences. So, so the thing I've done with most of my clients over the years is say, okay, we got maintenance doses that we need to apply and we need to find some way to afford those. And then we can spoon feed a few things at those critical times to make it work. But it's always going to be a challenge for ag just because of the sheer cost decay. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. And that's that's one thing I think for our non-farm listeners, uh, farmers are not over-applying because fertilizer is really, really expensive <laughs> and it comes right off the bottom line. And you mentioned, Bill, finding the best sources. I think that's one of the keys, too, that there are a lot of different ways you can get K out there. When, when you look at something like uh, compost or manure, how do you compare that to something like potash, for example, where you know what's in there, but you may not know what the first year availability is well it first starts with you know if you're putting anything out with some without some kind of analysis that's your first mistake you wouldn't buy anything if you didn't know what was in it you know you buy mop you know it's 60 to 62 percent k you buy sop you know it's 50 to 51 percent k but you buy compost if you don't have an analysis on that how much k do you know that is in there and then if you don't know what's in there, how do you know how much will be released? So uh, a compost is, you know, for particularly when you've got a lighter soil, oh, it, it becomes a great source of another place to store nutrients in addition to the clay particles because there's not much air ability to store there. So it really becomes almost 
a mandatory part of everything I do on super light soils. And, and we're going to talk, say, down at below uh, exchange capacity of, say, seven or so. I begin to really look at compost, anything down to five, it, it's mandatory. You have to have that because it just won't hold enough nutrients. So we have to have other ones hanging around there. But, uh, you know, compost, uh, a little bit different. It's stabilized in that carbon molecule. And you're not going to get it all released in one year, whereas a manure will, will basically, because it's not stabilized, it, it, you know, you're going to lose some nutrients, but you're also going to get a lot more, particularly of K and P, when you're when you're applying it. But but with compost, because it's nice and complex, you struggle. A, a good rule of thumb for me is on a compost or I usually figure I can count on getting at least half the first year and, uh, and then half of that what's left the second year and on down. So it's a half of a half of a half. And, um, particularly with nitrogen, uh, really is that way, but potassium to a certain extent. So when you're doing that composting, what you're trying to do is create a program, not just an application. And when I mean a program using a consistent compost or manure, that's, you know, and how do you get a consistent manure? Well, it's coming from the same source that's feeding kind of the same ration all the time. And you can get a fairly uh, reliable uh, source of, of that uh, manure. But on compost, if you think about it, I get half of what's there. And the following year, I get half of the half. Now I'm getting three quarters of my original application. So if you begin to stack three, four, five years, what you're applying is going to be what you get out. And that becomes valuable to, for your calculations on how much you're putting into everything, you know. And, uh, again, uh, very good. I, I, was, I got just on the tail end of the previous guy, and one of the things he said, which is really stinging us out here, is water and water quality. And, you know, it's like everything. If I don't put any water in, I can't get nutrients to flow because that act of, of transpiration will pull moisture into the plant and with that moisture will come those nutrients in the soil solution. So without water, potassium is impossible to get in. The other thing we're finding here is we're fighting high sodium and then in some, a lot of cases high boron in our, our well waters. And as we see that, that just is a competition for potassium. And if you, I know you guys have had a lot to do with Neil and if you get our sodium numbers above our potassium on that soil colloid, well, what's that plant going to take up? It's very similar in size and shape of potassium and sodium, and it takes up what's in the greatest amount. And so because of that, you're going to start to take up more sodium, and it, particularly if you're not keeping your potassium numbers up. So it's a double-edged sword. So it's a strategy to, to maybe, and that's when we talk about sources, uh, you know, Bill, and Bill, everybody irrigation. talks about irrigation. Like, man, if I just had irrigation, all my problems would be gone. Now you're talking about, huh, if you don't have good quality irrigation, more problems could be started. Hey, Bill, we got to let you run, but really appreciate having you on. We'll continue the discussion on K right after this. Compromise is nice. 
if you're at the playground or scouring yard sales. But farmers know better that middle grounds have no winner. That's why there's Revitec fungicide, fast-acting and long-lasting, preventative and curative, disease control and stress reduction. So leave the settling to little Tommy at the seesaw, an old bargain bill, and take your full prize in yields with Revitec fungicide for uncompromised performance. Always read and follow label directions. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. What if your herbicide was easy to mix and tough for weeds to resist? Anthem Flex Herbicide from FMC offers the most effective mode of action for spring and winter wheat, delivering long-lasting control of grasses and broadleaf weeds, including Italian ryegrass, rat-tail fescue, and downy brome, plus weeds typically resistant to glyphosate and Group 1 and Group 2 herbicides. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Every week for more than two decades, Ag PhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. AgroLiquid is precision crop nutrition. That means being committed to product performance, to research and field testing, and to superior agronomics. Most of all, AgroLiquid is committed to delivering precisely the right nutrition in the right way, including seed-safe planter plus side dress applications and foliar applications with low burn risk. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today, and our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, as well as our email box, which is always open, radio at agphd.com. If you have any questions, if you want to talk about your potassium levels or anything else going on in your farm, uh, please let us know. We'd love to help. Got our friend Dr. Jerry Willem uh, with AgroLiquid. Talking about potassium just a little bit, Jerry, uh, you get asked about potassium a lot. I know you've done a ton of work all over the country on research with potassium. And when I think about our soils here and what we've got for PNK, a little different than what you've had to face over in Michigan for PNK levels. So uh, where do you want to start with the potassium discussion? Well, hi, hi Darren. Say uh, P 
and K, you're constantly asked about it, particularly here in, in Michigan. Our soils generally, at least where we are, are lighter. I mean, we're CEC 10 to 12 in that, and nothing really on our farms over 20. So we're mostly dealing with that. And I think I've told this story before, but I mean, back in the old days, 20, 30 years ago, when 150 bushels, 140 bushels was a good crop, we didn't really see the drawdown. But now that, you know, your failure, if you're not growing 200 bushels, uh, that's when we started to see drawdown and we had to pay more attention to trying to maintain those levels. I'll be honest, it's, we've just not uh, really strived to maintain, you know, that 5 6% base saturation. But we know that it is a combination of, uh, you know, the dry potash and our liquid in furrows seems to be the best way to go. You know, I think about the the combination approach, just taking multiple swings at almost any problem in agriculture. It almost always seems to make more sense, Jerry. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and another thing that we've often, often talked about is, you know, use the tools that you have. Uh, you know, it's difficult to go 100% of, of your fertilizer all in, in one shot. And so, you know, use some broadcast, use some in furrow. And then the, I like, you're talking about tissue test levels. You can look at, uh, you know, if you're going to do a split application of nitrogen and maybe do your uh, second side dress at like V8, you know, take a, take a tissue test at that time and see what you're lacking. And, you know, it could be potassium. So you can put some liquid potassium in with your nitrogen along with a micronutrient or whatever you need. So that's, especially as, we, as we're talking about with, with the cost of things today, you just, just want to have every move that you make be a planned move. You know, and I look at, at the cost of things, but I also look at return on investment. And I know for us where we had drought the last couple of years and we've got more potassium in the plant, we've got better stocks, we were able to hang on longer through the drought, we had a little more forgiveness with the drought. And, you know, it's hard to run those numbers when, hey, we've been on a potassium build program on our farm for a number of years, it sure appears to be paying off, even on years like this. Yeah, I mean, during drought, the potassium bait largely becomes unavailable, uh, even though you're not going to really need that as much because your yield potential isn't there. But the potassium does get stored. A lot of it gets kind of trapped in the in the uh, condensed uh, clay layers that uh, normally they'd be hydrated and potassium move in and out. And when it gets dry, the clay layers kind of collapse and trap a lot of potassium there. So that's just kind of like a holding pattern. So you get some uh, moisture for next year, and then it'll it'll enter into the soil solution again and, and be available then. So you are going to kind of holding it over. But as you said, you have you still have a soil solution that's going to have more potassium in it because of what you've been applying and potassium generally can only enter the plant through the soil solution. So you got to have enough there to be in the soil solution. You know, one of the questions we get on potassium is, okay, if I'm, if I'm short or if I'm in a drought, can I deliver K through foliar applications? I know you've worked with uh, sure K for a number of years and other K sources. You've done a lot of testing on this. What have you found? Can we drive more K in at critical times if we need to do it foliar? Yeah, but I'd be careful during the drought. You know, if the plant's stressed, it's just not going to be taking things up. Uh, so, so 
it might bounce back in the morning and you can maybe get some, some on in a foliar then. But I generally, if it's, if you're in a drought, I just haven't really tried to push nutrition that much myself because water's the, the major limiting factor and the, the plant's not going to be operating normally if, if you're in a drought. So, you know, you, you can, it, 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 there is still some soil solution, some soil moisture there. And so there it's going to be taking it in mainly through the roots. And I, I probably would not be pushing a, a, a foliar if it is drought, but we have had, obviously had success uh, in, you know, in, in situations where there is good moisture. And that's, again, where you can use a tissue test to find out what, what you're lacking and, and apply it that way. But, you know, droughts, you're kind of getting iffy. You know, you mentioned lighter soils as we started off this segment, and I think about our heavy soils. Brian was making the comment, you know, it's it's like uh, putting money in the bank. We can put K out there, our soil will hold on to it, and we can make withdrawals along the way if we need to, or we can just keep maintaining that level. How about for the guys with really light soil? When you start talking an exchange capacity of less than 10, uh, and especially when you get down less than 5, you work with a lot of farmers in those situations how do you manage K? Do you have to spoon feed during the year or do you have to overload it at the beginning? What strategies have worked well? Well, again, that's the spoon feeding. And, you know, one thing about the lighter soil is the more the potassium, because it's not going to be as, as, as trapped by the, the high CEC, more of it's going to be in the soil solution and, uh, you know, be more plant available. So that's why you don't really have to put on, uh, you know, quite as much because more of it's going to be available to the to the plant in the soil solution. And uh, so with, with lighter, just like in any case, though, that that multi-application that multi uh, application program would be better when, when you can broadcast some and then r- run some through the planter. And in case I'm almost out of time, I just want to say again, I think I mentioned this last time I was on talking about potassium, per- per- particularly if you're in lighter texture soils, you can... Uh, if you could plant in the same same row, like if you're on 30 inch spacing, plant in the same, uh, put that row in the same spot every year, because we have found that there is potassium left over from you know liquid application. Plus, it's a better loosened seed zone for the roots. So we have found that you can get potassium, uh, more potassium from last year's uh, fertilizer application, even though you think it might not be there. But we've seen we physically visually seeing those differences. Yeah, it, it definitely makes a difference, no doubt. And and we talk about this all the time. Not 100% of your fertility is, is going to all be available that same year. And certainly there's some that's in the stock that is going to go back into the soil, too, after you're done raising that crop. So it's important to be out there and do some soil testing. And like you mentioned, just keep after it each year. Jerry, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on today. Oh, I always enjoy the discussion. Thank you very much. You bet. Talking potassium, uh, Brian, I know we had a number of different points there that Jerry had made and, and Bill Brush and Mike Evans. Uh, anything you wanted to, to circle back on and, and uh, just comment on? Well, I started the show by saying fertilizer prices are high and you might be wondering where to cut. I just encourage you get a good, complete soil test and don't just do a composite test for your field. In other words, one sample per field. Do small grids or small zones, and then you can really see where your variability is. But the big thing is, if you don't understand how to read that soil test, 
please send them to us, radio at agphd.com. We're more than happy to look at your soil tests and give you our opinion, our thoughts on, on what we see. But you want to look for what's going to be your yield limiting factor. And so when I see low K levels, like 2% or less on the base saturation potassium, that's really, really low. And I will promise you, you're getting hurt by that. If you have at least halfway decent levels of nitrogen and phosphorus and some of these other things. So yeah, if you're going for 50 bushel corn, I mean, you can do whatever you want. But if you're going for good yields, we want to make sure that that base saturation K is at least 4%. We have adequate pounds in the soil and we've got this potassium in ratio with magnesium and calcium and all the other stuff in the soil. So can you cut back? Sure. If you have high K levels right now, you can cut back. But just remember, you pull a lot of K out with every crop. So cutting back is only a short-term thing. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Growing up on the farm, I woke up as early as mom and dad. I put as many hours on the tractor, changed as many teeth on the tiller as my brothers. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, man or woman. When there's work to be done, you put your boots on and you do it. I do that on my farm and in my job at Case IH. My name is Kelsey, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. There's a new kind of crop protection in your territory, and it's always on the hunt. Howler Fungicide unleashes multiple modes of action for proven, broad-spectrum protection against soil-borne and foliar diseases. Start protecting your territory at agbiome.com howler. Did you know 20% of stored corn is often overventilated by three points of moisture? On 100,000 bushels, that's a whole semi-load. Stop this problem for less with the end zone for corn from Farm Shop MFG, specially priced at $1,800 per unit while supplies last. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, Updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. 
At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Our email box is open radio at agphd.com, or you can call us at 844 44 AgPhD with any agronomic questions, or if you want to continue the discussion about potassium. Let's head down to Oklahoma next. We've got Tyler on with us. Tyler, how you doing? Doing good. How are you guys? Pretty good, pretty good. So we're talking expensive fertilizer today. So that that really jogs something for you. You're thinking about Bermuda grass. Talk to us about that. Okay, I was wondering when you do your soil sampling. Uh, I've got a couple spots in a pasture that are quite a bit weaker as far as production goes on uh, Bermuda grass. Do you guys ever just sample a small grid out of that ten acres as opposed to where you're yep. you're getting a good stand? Okay. Yep, we okay. absolutely do. So. Now, granted, I mean, out in a normal field situation, like on our own farm, we're, we're doing one acre grids on the whole farm. We farm like 3,500 crop acres. I'm not suggesting that the normal person does that or does it every year. We do it mainly for research and just so we have more things to talk about. But I also would say by identifying the problem spots like you're talking about, it can be huge because we don't know what's going on there. And if you say, well, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, we're all just kind of guessing at it. Whereas if we at least have the soil test, that gives us a lot better indication. Oh, okay, here's something I see that could be, you know, the the biggest yield limiting factor. And now hopefully we've better invested our fertilizer dollars because there are two ways to look at this thing. I mean, one is, well, fertilizer prices are really high. Look, I get that, so we got to be careful. But the flip side is we have good commodity prices. We have, I mean, the value of grass production just in general is worth a lot. So we got a lot at stake here. We want to try to do it right. And yes, we'd absolutely tell you go to the worst spots, soil test there. Now, on the flip side, if you want to go to a couple of super high high producing spots, you could test those too. Now you can compare things. You might be able to figure it out yourself. Otherwise, I mean, you can certainly send us your soil tests. We're happy to look at them anytime. Okay, great. What also are your thoughts are, depending on the testing, what you might need about fertilizing Bermuda grass in the fall? Well, yeah, on our absolutely not, or have, say, have you done it? Say say that one more time. About fertilizing and and putting some extra stuff on in the fall, right yeah. before uh, right before winter time, basically to get a little bit more winter forage, dry grass, things yeah. like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we're, we're big proponents of doing that. And then also, obviously, again, in the spring, when we have the leachable nutrients like nitrogen, sulfur, and even boron, they're not going to stay around forever. And so I don't know what your soil type is like or anything else, but I would just say there are some of these nutrients where we have to think about doing a couple or even more applications per year. 
So our number one suggestion for you is soil test. Number two is take a look at the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app. You can punch in Bermuda grass, put in your yield goal, and it will tell you roughly what you need in terms of total nutrients out there. So those are just a couple of quick things. But as far as what to do in the fall, I mean, I can't tell you exactly without looking at your soil tests. But I would say if you have good nutrient levels, then typically you have better winter survivability. Or like in your case, if you you don't get super cold like we do, then hopefully you're just getting more total production over the course of the winter and you're setting yourself up nice for spring. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you guys for your time. I do appreciate it. You bet. No problem. Good luck down there, Tyler. Thank you. All right, Brian, got a a few questions here that came in from Austin. He's over. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. He's over where? He's over uh, in southern Wisconsin. He said, guys, a few things for you here. First of all, weed control question. Hemp dogbane and dandelions. We'd like to control those both in the fall after corn. We're going to soybeans next year. Uh, it's going to be in list, by the way. Okay. I just wonder if there's any residual I could add to the tank that might buy me a little more time before spraying the in list next year, assuming that I can't get a pre-emerge on in the spring. Also, uh, around this, what temperature do you say is too cold to spray the fall burndown? Roundup's the best. The problem is when you say after corn. If you're going after corn, that after tells corn me it could be in late. Wisconsin. Yes. Right. And Roundup just doesn't work very well if we've had any frost at all. So I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. It's going to be weather dependent. They, ha- right. they haven't had exactly. their first hard-killing frost there yet. Nope. So no. still got a shot. Yes. If corn's coming out now, yes. then, hey, we're in good shape. Okay. So here are the two scenarios. One, if you can get it done before the frost, and I mean at least two or three days before the frost. If you can get that done, go with the highest labeled rate around them. I mean, you hit it hard. And don't get carried away in the water volume. Keep that water volume low. Then you have concentrated droplets. Because like with hemp dogbane, it's got kind of a waxier leaf. See, it's hard to stick product on there. So do that. And by the way, don't do tillage first. Okay, make sure you're spraying. That's your first pass. Then you wait a few days. Then if you need to do any tillage, do it then. But make sure that rate is really, really strong. Otherwise, if let's say you have had a hard frost, you are not going to get real good kill out of Roundup especially. You can do okay with 2,4-D. So I'd probably go with a really high rate of 2,4-D, not some little quart or quart and a half rate of four pound, but I'm talking a really high rate in a non-crop situation. You can look on the label and see what the highest labeled rate is, but you want to hit it hard. For example, let's say you were planting extend beans or corn. What would I do? I'd go with a quart of Banville. That's a double rate compared to the pint that people will use usually use in corn. And the quart rate will burn stuff back. Great. I just wouldn't do that when you're late in the season and it's going to be enlist soybeans next year because there might be a little bit of that dicamba that hangs around depending on when your frost sets in and how early you plant in the spring. Like for our farm, we like to start planting even beans now just as the frost is coming out of the ground. Well, if if my soil temp is still 45 degrees, did I really break down all the dicamba that I sprayed in the fall? Probably not. So that's why I worry and I wouldn't put dicamba out, but 2,4-D after the frost, otherwise Roundup before. Now, in terms of any soil residual, sure, you can throw a Valor out. You can throw a Yellow out. I mean, you can even throw a Group 15 out, but are any of those things good on hemp dogbane and dandelions? No. 
All right. Uh, Austin also has a fertility question, and he said, I've got a CEC of 12 to 18, so kind of a medium textured soil. And if I had everything else in balance and everything else was perfect, but my boron test said half a part per million, what rate of actual boron would you guys recommend if I wanted to start building my levels? Is five pounds of actual in dry boron too much? Probably. In your case. And the reason why I say that is it's medium textured soil. Take a look at how much calcium is in your soil. So if you've got, it, let's say it's, uh, well, we want to look at about a thousand to one ratio. So let's say you had 5,000 pounds of calcium in your soil. Well, then I'm probably fine with putting five pounds of actual boron on, but that's really pushing it. When you're first trying this out, go small. So we started at a pound, then we did two pounds, then we did three pounds, then we did some at five, and we just started trying these things just to make sure we're not running into any issues out there. Because if you overdo boron, just like if you overdo anything, it can be detrimental to the crop. You know, So yeah, instead of five, I'd probably feel real comfortable with two, maybe three. Try just a tiny little bit at five. Okay. Then the other thing, Brian, I'm just going to add this on to Austin's question because he said, let's just assume everything else is perfect here. I'm assuming, Austin, everything else is not perfect. So here's the real question. Where do you put building boron levels up in your list of priorities? Low. Low. The first thing I'm building up on my farm well, I can't really say first thing because I want to build P and K, but P and K have to take priority. And you got to look at what you're doing for nitrogen, for sulfur, and quite frankly, even for the micronutrients, I'm probably going to look at zinc before boron. Um, I'm definitely going to be looking at iron and manganese. So yeah, boron's a ways down on my list. But a lot of people look at it as, okay, I'm going to do one thing, then I'm going to do the next thing, then I'm going to do the next thing. What I look at is I have so many dollars to invest. How could I best invest those dollars? And maybe I take 50 cents or a dollar and put toward the boron so I at least get a little bit out there. And that helps me, uh, you know, to some degree rather than saying, well, I'm going to spend all my dollars this year on phosphorus and all my dollars next year on potassium. Yeah, I think you want to try and build everything up in balance at least to let's get everything up to exactly. an average level and then we'll start shooting for exceptional. Hey, thanks for the questions, Austin. We really appreciate that. We'll be back with more of your calls and questions right after this. Early does it. Strong early season defenses against seedling insects and soil diseases are key to a successful season. The leader in Inferro Solutions, FMC, helps protect your fields from the start with a growing portfolio of Inferro innovations. You can't predict the future, but you can plant for it. Visit your FMC retailer or inferro.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions for use. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. 
Downtime during spraying can lead to huge yield losses. Keep rolling with the Pentair Hypro Force Field. This pump features a unique self-regulated chamber that allows the pump to run dry while eliminating cracked seals, so you can spray longer and more reliably. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's Zealpro Miticide from Valent USA. With next level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air, and confidently attack mites where they are. Make Zealpro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got this one that came in from Ghana, West Africa, from Edwin, and he said, Guys, I'm 26 years old. I've really got a passion for agriculture, and I want to get into the ag industry. Now, I came across a video that you guys had online about subsurface drip tape irrigation. And my question is, I'm looking for somebody who can teach me how it's done, giving me recommendations, and potentially mentoring me on subsurface irrigation. Uh, Do you have any ideas for me? Are you the guys to talk to, or is there somebody better able to do that? Yeah, we don't have... We have never had much of that on our own farm, just some little demo plots, basically. We don't have access to a whole lot of water here because there is granite below us, and it's really thick and really deep. That's part of why there are a lot of quarries around us, (laughs) and even as you go east about 20 miles, there's a whole bunch of pasture there because the rock is literally at the soil surface. But anyway, where I'm going with all this is, no, we aren't necessarily the experts on that, but I would say there are a number of drip tape irrigation companies out there. You can certainly contact them. We've done a bunch of work with Netafim in the past, for example, and then they could hook you up maybe with some farmers that have used it. But I would say by having subsurface irrigation, it's a way to get by with less water than what you would need for center pivot because you're not going to have all that evaporation. You can also, if you want, at the same time you're putting water out there, you can pump some nutrients through as well. Depending on the crop that you're raising, there are some people who will raise what we would consider here specialty crops or high dollar crops. They will have the the drip tape 
on the surface of the soil, and then they'll roll it up after every season and then use it again. Otherwise, you can put it down below the ground. A lot of times we're talking in the range of 14 to 24 inches deep, something like that. Just depends on your situation. But it does seem like it's a pretty good way to go. You can certainly have problems with rodents. I mean, maybe if you did some super deep tillage or something like that. I mean, there are, there are some watchouts there, but subsurface irrigation does seem to be pretty effective. Lots of farmers are using that around the world. Hey, thanks for the question, Edwin. We really appreciate that. And as you get going, if you have other agronomic questions, uh, sure, feel free to send us an email. Get this one in from Mark, Brian. He, he said, guys, I've got hybrid Bermuda fields, and I'm just having an invasion of foxtails this year, so killing a grass in a grass crop. Now, he said, here's my products that I'm using, and I'm wondering if I'm using the right products and if I just am not using them correctly or if there's something else, else I should should switch to. He said, I started off with Prowl or Pendimethalin in the spring, and I came back with Pastora at first cutting. It's been pretty wet this year, and Foxtail has really taken advantage of these conditions. Well, when I think about Foxtail, and if I can use Prowl or Pendimethalin down, usually if I've got moisture, it works better. So I'm not sure when that moisture hit, but Prowl and moisture, that sounds like a decent recipe for taking out annual grasses. Now, prowl doesn't have any reach back. So if the grass had already gotten started before the prowl got applied, then I can see where you're going to have some problems. But I don't have any issue with, with the prowl as long as it's relatively safe for your Bermuda. I think prowl is a decent option for controlling many of the foxtail weeds. I would also question... Are you sure they're foxtails? Uh, make sure that weed identification is is correct. But assuming that it's foxtails, uh, I would say pendimethalin's a pretty good first start. And then pastora coming back, it's not great at big foxtails, but if the foxtails are relatively small, we should be able to get them. The challenge of doing it after the first cutting is you've allowed those foxtails to tiller. And once they've tillered, that makes them a little tougher to kill. And with any of those post-emerge applications, weather and adjuvant use and all those things become really important. A lot of times when I'm spraying grasses post-emerge, I like to have a crop oil type product and something like ammonium sulfate or some sort of nitrogen source in there. And it seems like we get better control on the weeds, but you can also have a little more crop response, especially in Bermuda. So I don't know that necessarily the product selection is terrible. I, I'm just wondering what happened that it didn't work a little bit better. Yep, I agree. I, I don't know that I have a great answer for you there. The, the thing that I would say is if we're dealing with annual grasses, the key is to keep them from going to seed. So whether it's mowing, grazing, whatever it is, we want to try to keep those weeds from going to seed. And then hopefully in the future, you have a lot lower weed seed bank and an easier time controlling any of those annual grasses. All right. Got a question here from Jane and Jane said, I've got alfalfa and I'm wondering if it's horse quality, if it's cattle quality, uh, how do I figure out what quality I've got so I know how to price this stuff? Uh, what kind of tests do you run on alfalfa? What would you be looking for? Well, 
tonnage is number one. But yeah, in terms of quality, then there there are tests that can be run. Just send it to a lab, and you can talk to any lab out there, and they will be able to tell you what all, all their quality tests are. It's basically the feed value is what you're after. So, for example, we go to a dairy with our alfalfa, and they want to cut it early. I mean, like, as soon as they're seeing the first bloom even in that field— and they're looking for a total digestibility that's out there. So it, it just depends on who you're dealing with. If they want tons and they're not that worried about that side, if it's going to a dairy or, I mean, who it's going to exactly. So you want to work with the end purchaser and say, all right, what's most important to you? What could I try to deliver to you? Then beyond that, our topic today was potassium. Well, alfalfa takes a ridiculous amount of potassium and that's one of the biggest issues that we see is people are way short on potassium i'll tell you too just a couple other quick tips with alfalfa we want to keep that soil ph up near seven not if it's at five or even six you're losing a lot of tonnage and it's also going to negatively impact your quality boron for a micronutrient is really important and not enough people talk about that it's, I would say, in more demand with alfalfa than many other crops. So just a few little quick tips that hopefully will help you out there. But yeah, just talk to a lab and talk to the end producer, see what they're really looking for. All right, got, to, got this question from Jeff, and he said, guys, I've got a 13-acre apple and cherry orchard, and I've got a significant problem with stinging nettle and lesser problems with musk bull and Canadian thistle. Now I heard on your show about using Freelex for orchard floor broadleaf weed control and I made repeated passes. It seems to slow things down, but stinging nettle comes back, thistles come back too eventually. I'm just wondering, is there anything I can use that can get to the root of the nettle or the thistle without damaging my trees? Uh, well, sure. I mean, you could go out and use Roundup if you want to. Just keep it off the leaves of the trees. That'll be just fine. The problem with that is, well, it's going to kill the thistle and the stinging nettle. It's also going to kill the grass. But if you want, I mean, control all the way down in through the root system, that'll absolutely work. Just make sure you keep the water volume down, use the highest labeled rate of Roundup, and, and that will make a difference for you. So, yeah, we do talk about using Freelex and just burning stuff back. Use the highest labeled rate there, too, if you choose to do that. I like that in that it doesn't kill the grass, and then usually we can let the grass yes. get going, and then hopefully that chokes out those weeds in the future. It's very rate-sensitive, so that's something you, you almost should be putting a little bit of a brown tinge to the grass if you're getting that rate right on the Freelex. So maybe that's one of the things, too. You just push that rate just a little bit higher. I'm not sure what you've tried for rates, but uh, usually one time at a at a good, strong rate helps longer. And then you're going to have some regrowth, like you say, with that root system, especially on perennials out there. But the stinging nettle is not a perennial, so you can wipe that out if you use a strong enough rate. Yeah, and when it comes to stinging nettle, a lot of times, like in pastures, people will talk about Grazon and Milestone and a bunch of these products that you don't want around your trees. So just be careful if somebody tells you, oh, hey, yeah, use this for stinging nettle. Well, around trees, um, it, it's just a whole different deal than if you're on a pasture situation. All right, thanks for the question, Jeff. We really appreciate that. 
Uh, we are getting a lot of questions in this time of year, and as as we get towards the end of the season, a lot of fall questions, or even a lot of questions coming up as as harvest goes on, trying to figure out why things were great or why things weren't. Uh, you can always email them to us, radio at agphd.com. We'd be happy to to take a look and give our opinion. Thanks for listening to our program today. Get to talk about potassium uh, in the fertility spectrum of of topics here. Potassium's certainly been a big one for us. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.